welcome to Olin, a straight shooting science-based podcast about periods, fertility and nurturing health outside of unrealistic beauty expectations. We will mostly but not exclusively focus on hypothalamic amenorrhea, HA, a component of the female athlete triad and relative energy deficiency in sport. I'm Dr. Nicola Rinaldi, scientist and lead author of the book No Period, Now What? I specialize in helping people understand how their eating, exercise, and lifestyle habits are keeping them from hormonal health and their best life. My work focuses on regaining periods, improving fertility, and breaking free of the rules of underlying diet culture. You can book an appointment to speak with me at noperiod.info slash appointments, and go to noperiod.info slash support to join my new online community. My name is Florence Gillet. I am a certified eating psychology coach and the founder of beyondbodyimage.com, as well as the French Instagram account aminore underscore fr. I specialize in weight-inclusive mental and body image recovery. My goal is to help people let go of toxic weight and beauty beliefs to finally feel confident in their bodies. Florence and I also offer a joint coaching package for people wishing to address different aspects of period recovery in a more personal way, accessible from both of our appointment sites. Every two weeks, the All In podcast brings you real recovery stories, expert insights, and new scientific research on HA, hormonal health, and fertility, with an unmissable touch of body respect and women's empowerment. Just a reminder that this podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and their guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. It's for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your primary health practitioner for any medical questions. Music by the Andy Shulman Band, available on Spotify. Hi, Nicola. How are you today? Doing well. It's been um, a long time since we've chatted, I feel like, um, but it's nice to be back and recording another episode. Um, and I'm excited to talk about our subject for today. Yes, today we have an important topic that I think it's weird to me that we actually waited so long to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think it's sometimes you know, we, we had so many great guests and it got lost in translation a little bit, but we're going to talk more in depth about all in, what Uh it is, what it isn't, how some people have taken over the term for their own purposes, um, especially online. Um, and I think a good way to start this discussion, if you can tell us a little bit more about how you define all in and how it came about, and, you know, really what brought you to this? Yes, absolutely. So this goes all the way back to the Fertile Thoughts Board, um, mm-hmm. where you and I met. And, um, you know, it was just kind of as people were getting used to the idea of eating more and cutting out their high-intensity exercise and sort of all those things, um, we just kind of came to that as a common term for, you know, are you really doing all the things or are you kind of like maybe just eating a little bit more or just exercising a little bit less, you know, all that. Do it. 
Yes, yes. I mean, dipping your toe in is basically what my doctors told me. They said exactly that, like eat a little bit more, exercise a little bit less, maybe, and, you know, see what happens and wait six months or whatever, you know. So that's that's not an uncommon recommendation. But we sort of came to that organically as, you know, are you really doing all the things? Um and so that's really the genesis of the term. Um, and then, obviously, when I was writing the book, it I used it in the book because, again, it's that sort of idea of are you quasi working yes. on things? Are you sort mm-hmm. of just doing a little bit or are you actually like really giving it your all? Um, so in the book, we define all in as eating a minimum of about 2,500 calories, Mm -hmm. um, all the foods, like there's no, you can't be all in if you're still restricting carbs or you're still doing keto or whatever. I mean, obviously, as we always say, things that you are actually allergic to, we do not want you to eat things and go to the hospital. Like, of course. <laughs> we agree on that. Yes, yes. But other than that, you know, like if you've cut out gluten because, you know, your aunt's doctor's <laughs> naturopath told them that gluten was bad, like, you know, that's that's often where we come to these ideas. Yeah. So anyway. Or oh, online, little, right? That you've track. read yes. somewhere, you've read somewhere that, you know, this was bad and this was better. And I was a big fan of those posts in my oh, yeah. dieting <laughs> days, um, which is completely crazy because, you know, I, would, I wouldn't even know what the sources were or why mm-hmm. it would be decided or how it would actually fit into my own routine or body or culture, right? Because culturally also, I think we forget that, you know, cutting off rice, if you live in Asia, it's going to be really complicated. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Anyhow, we're coming off track. So eating all the foods. (laughs) So minimum of 2,500 calories, more if you feel hungry for it. That's really important. It's not, you must eat exactly 2,500 calories. And then stop. All food groups. (laughs) Right, right. All the foods, cutting out high-intensity exercise, um, reducing stress as much as you can, and also really working on the mental side of recovery. So deprogramming from the diet mentality, working on body image and body appreciation. Um, So I think think it's important to remind people that this is all evidence-based. This is not just like... I randomly pulled this 2,500 number out of a hat, and so now that's what's going to work for everybody. Um, So I go into a lot of detail in the book about where these numbers come from. Um, And I do think it's important, like we often say we we try not to talk about numbers, but it is important when somebody's coming from a background of restriction that they do have an idea of where where they need to be. Yeah. Um, which is why I include the numbers in the book. And it's actually quite detailed in the book. You know, more so, it's it not is. just 2,500 calories. There is a range that's given. Um, and that kind of came from my own experience with that number was when we were on the board, people started mm-hmm. looking at a website from Gwyneth Olwyn that said, oh, you know, 2,500 calories for eating disorder recovery and everybody should eat that no matter what. And I was like, I read that. I was like, that doesn't make sense. I mean, you can't tell me that like somebody who's who's five foot tall should be eating exactly the same as somebody who's six foot tall. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, it just didn't. And so for me, I needed that number to make sense. I needed to understand why it was 2,500 calories and where that was coming from. So I looked into the medical literature and there's actually been some amazing experiments that have been done that really help us to um, basically really prove that that is the amount of energy that a person needs on a daily basis. So there are two different ways that it's been measured. One is... um, an experiment where they use something called doubly labeled water. So this is actually water that has radioactive components to it. I think it's a radioactive oxygen and radioactive carbon. Obviously, very low levels of radiation, so it's not dangerous. <laughs> you don't um, become mean does, if you drink <laughs> Right. <laughs> but it does allow the researchers to measure very exactly how, how your body is metabolizing um, the food that you eat and all of that. It's... Yeah. The whole thing is a little beyond my understanding, but, you know, they do mm-hmm. they do have equations that they come out with based on this that sort of tell you how much yeah. somebody who's basically in equilibrium is, yes. is eating and then burning on a daily basis. Yes, this kind of balance um, that we talk about, yes. energy balance, energy surplus, energy deficit, like this is, yeah, yeah. We, we want to yes. get to the point where we can function, we eat enough to function and to have all the functions in our body uh, work optimally, right? Yep. So that was the first method, right, that they used to prove that. But then you also looked into other research that was basically coming to, with another method, coming to the same results that it would be close to 2,500 calories. Right. So this this other method is it's called room calorimetry. So basically they have people live in a room that's completely like vacuum sealed and everything. And again, they can measure how much water vapor is coming out and carbon dioxide wow. and all those things. And that so seems crazy it was, to me. Yeah. <laughs> so they have people stay in the room for like 24 hours. And so they can measure the actual energy that their body is burning. It's it's really cool. Um, but so what I found absolutely fascinating was that the two methods that are completely different came to almost identical numbers. And, you know, that really, to me, supports the fact that this is, you know, 2,500 calories, plus or minus, you can go read the book to to learn more. But, um, you know, it's just, it's too hard to say, well, if you're X, you know, if you're X size, then you need this amount. And if you're Y size, you need this amount. It's just like, it's roughly 2,500 calories. The plus and minus isn't very much. So... Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't make a huge difference in your way of eating anyway. Right. And considering right. that we see it as a minimum, I think it's it's mostly that, right? It's not because yes. it's not. Uh, and, you know, even if you think of how do I calculate the calories in my head or how much is it written on the package of something that I'm eating? We know that it's always a rough way of seeing, I mean, it's never going to be like a hundred percent precise. So I know in the book you mentioned at some point, like it would be maybe, uh, you know, 2,450 or 2,550. It wouldn't really make a big deal into how a human person is going to actually try and reach those levels. So let's say 2,500, it's easier for everybody to kind of find their way through that. Um, considering it's a minimum. Okay, that's cool. And also, I mean, part of all in is letting go of the counting. It's not actually tracking anymore. It's so, you know, we always say like, 
maybe count for a few days just to make sure that, you know, because if you're, say, doubling the amount of food you're eating, you know, that can be a bit of challenging. So you might need yeah. to count for a couple of days just to make sure that you're really getting up to that level. But then it's not necessary to be tracking things so closely. No. And so, you know, count for a little bit and then stop and just keep eating the way that you have been. And, you know, that's that's sort of the, the best path forward. Um, and, you know, I find that reintroducing all the foods usually does the trick in terms of getting to those minimums. Uh, it's typically, you know, if you've consciously tried to eat different foods just to reduce your energy intake, then you know that yeah. if you reintroduce some, uh, you know, nutrient rich or uh, just rich, just alone rich, like just, yes. you know, rich <laughs> foods, um, you know, cakes and, and crisps and chips and whatever maybe you used to forbid, right? Or, or say mm -hmm. that it would be bad for you. I find that if you eat all of the foods and if you, another way for me to work with clients is really to say, eat uh, three meals, three snacks, right? Mm -hmm. Eat regularly then there's a good chance that uh, even if people cannot really calculate their amounts, there's a good chance that they will get to that minimum in, in a day. Um, yep. And this is obviously something that, you know, you can get help on, um, whether it is through coaching or through the new group, right? The new support group where there will be mm -hmm. that type of discussions and because you will be moderating and I'm there also, uh, I would say not as often as you, but you know, I'm there also <laughs> to moderate. I think it's really discussions that are, uh, really helpful to have with other people in recovery, mm -hmm. uh, that are maybe a little bit further along or that can say, Hey, if you really don't want to count, if it makes you really, uh, if it makes you lose your mind to count all these calories, uh, then just make sure that you eat this way. And there's a good chance that, you know, you will start seeing the benefits of that and seeing yep. the, the, the signs of your body actually coming back to life. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, um, something else you uh, so wanted to add about this? Yeah, so that's sort of the the evidence on the eating side. And mm -hmm. like I said, that's all in chapter eight of the book. Um, yeah. And then the next few chapters sort of go on to, to talk about support and how you actually put this into practice. Right. And then the other evidence-based section is chapter 12. And that's really where I really go through the evidence on why it is important to cut out high-intensity exercise right. um, and what high-intensity exercise means. So... You know, again, there's a lot of evidence in the literature where they're talking about different amounts of exercise and menstrual dysfunction from luteal phase dysfunction yeah. to anovulation. So I pull all of that together to really explain why it is that high intensity exercise um, is likely not going to work with recovery. I mean, again, that's yeah. sort of part of the like stepping into it. You know, sometimes people um, are not able to, it, it, it actually often seems to be harder to cut out exercise than to yep. eat more for a lot of people. Um, and, and I think so, there's really just this inability for people to recognize that no exercise is not always good for you. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, sometimes I use this example with clients. I'm like, if you had a broken foot, would you be running outside? And they'll say, well, of course not. And, well, you some know, some people will actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but you know, that wouldn't be something that is recommended or that is considered yeah. healthy. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, and I, I, honestly, I can only encourage people to get the book because obviously in my recovery, I didn't have the book. The book didn't exist. But I think like the information that you put about exercise and uh, high, high intensity exercise and the effect it can have on even just women that haven't changed their eating at all, right? So you have those examples of studies that mm -hmm. have been made that to me were like, mind-blowing and eye-opening to just say mm -hmm. like oh yeah I really need to work on that like it's not just yeah. something that you know Nicola put in to annoy me uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um I, I I find that the book is really a mine of information and I think there's a point where we really need to be confronted with that information and realize mm -hmm. hang on a minute if if actually women that haven't changed their eating um but that have still gotten menstrual cycle disturbances just due to the fact that they added more running or all of that. What mm -hmm. does it do to me who is really trying to eat under those minimums, yeah. um, substantially under those minimums? So mm -hmm. that was, that was really interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's the yeah. definition of all in, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and I think that was a, that was a long definition. It's hard to, I mean, it's really hard to define it in a short, pithy yeah. way. I mean, you can say, you know, eat 2,500 calories, eat all the foods, cut a high intensity exercise. Um, and I guess that's really all in, in a nutshell, but then there's also the stress aspect and yes. as you're saying, the body image and, and all of that. And that's yeah. really, so all in encompasses all of that. It's not just, it's really not just about just eating more, which I think is how um, the term has sort of been taken yeah. by a lot of people who have seen it online and not necessarily read the book and, you know, sort of just kind of jumped in like, oh, all, I'm all in, like I'm eating all the food. And yeah. um, you know, it's, it really is so much more than that. And I, actually, I think that leads us to another topic, um, which is, you know, what Olin is not. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, following that first explanation, I, I wanted to also bring a lot of myths that I've seen going around online mm -hmm. about, you know, oh, I don't need to use Olin if or in those situations or it doesn't make sense. So, so can we maybe go through those? But um, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about what it isn't? Uh, and what we need to really be careful when we deal with that concept. And I know we're going to go into nuances here, um, yep. uh, but can you tell us a bit more from your experience? Well, I think one really important thing that All In is not is it's not an absolute prescription. It's a set yep. of general guidelines. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's not, I'm not going to say you know, if you have one day where you eat slightly less, like you've ruined everything, you know, it's like, I feel like a lot of times when people are on diets, it's, you know, oh my God, if yeah. you have one day where you do something that's out of your diet, you know, allowed, allowed foods or whatever, then, you know, it's like, it's awful. It's horrible. You know, yeah. what are you going to do to come back from that? And it's like, no, our bodies are incredibly flexible. And, you know, it's, so it's, all in is a set of general guidelines. You know, I, I, I always tell people, you know, if you need to run for the bus, run for the damn bus, you know, <laughs> it's like, 
That is not going to yeah. make it so that you're suddenly not going to recover because one day you had to run for the bus or, you know, but obviously you don't want to be running for the bus every day because that's, you know, <laughs> maybe you should change up your, you know, change up your routine a little bit so that you can yeah. do things a little bit more, um, yeah. a little bit more But timely. I think it's interesting that um, you bring that up because a lot of us come from dieting backgrounds, right? We, mm-hmm. we, we're usually very good at dieting. And so we get rewarded for it as well, socially. And I think it's quite natural to try and transpose like the kind of perfectionism that we put into dieting. And a lot of us have extreme rules of what they can and cannot have. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of us like really put such strict dieting in place. Like I remember losing my mind because I had had one bite of, you know, bread or something Mm -hmm. that I couldn't have, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when I was really deeply in orthorexia and I had like all these ingredients that I thought were going to be so bad for my body and inflammation and my system and Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. of this narrative. It really made me feel like if I was eating for six months, like super strict, extreme dieting rules, but then I would have that one bite, I would actually break all the efforts mm-hmm. I had made, which mm-hmm. makes no sense, first thing, unless obviously you're allergic to those foods, which I'm not, by the way. Yep. I was convinced yep. I was and that I was <laughs> reacting those to those foods. But the reality is my body was so deprived that mm-hmm. the minute I was putting gluten in my mouth, obviously I would bloat and have issues. It was just because I had eliminated it for so long and my body didn't know what to do with it. Um, We speak about gut health, right, in an earlier episode also, which is really fascinating. Your gut health literally like gets poorer the minute you eliminate food. So all of this plays a role. Anyhow, all this to say, I I think it's really um, natural that people would go into the process of recovery with the same kind of perfectionistic tendencies and think, oh my God, if today I have ran for the bus or, you know, I wasn't able to eat the snack that I wanted to because I was in a meeting and couldn't get out, what is going to happen? And it's really, I think it's a, it's more of a long-term journey and process that people have to take into consideration and trying their best. And obviously it's also normal that you will potentially have not relapses, but like little lapses, right? Where mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. you're not so sure because again, the fear of weight gain is so powerful and overpowering that it's again, it's quite normal. I think one of the one of the big deals in this is really having self compassion with ourselves, and uh, yeah. as you say, like really see it as guidelines and not as set in stone. Oh my God, you've put one foot out of the rules, and that's it. It's the end of it. You're <laughs> yeah. never gonna recover. Yep. Uh, yes, it doesn't exactly. work that way, right? So yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is a growth journey and a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's nourishing your body and your mind. Um, it's not just eat more and it's definitely not just eat more until you achieve your whatever goal it is and then go back to your yeah. old ways. Um, so a short-term approach is really counterproductive. And I think, I think that's another, that's another thing I would say about what all in isn't. It, it's not a short-term plan. It's a, it's an overall shift in your mindset towards yes. food and exercise and your body. Um, 
you know, it's really about coming to a new understanding of all those things in a way that you are nourishing yourself so that you can live your best life instead of putting yourself into this food and exercise trap, prison, whatever, so that you, you know, you're so focused on that and you're so focused on your body that you don't have mental space or energy for things that are much more important, like your relationships and your work and, you know, all the amazing things that we can do in this world when we're not just focused on, I can only eat these few foods and when am I next going to be able to eat and, you know, all of, all of that. So, yeah, of course it's really difficult, isn't it? Because obviously Mm -hmm. you're not going to jump from one to the other. And I think it's difficult also, um, considering how we are educated around health to really realize that actually when we are in HA land, we are not healthy. And Mm -hmm. that eating more, resting more, exercising less is the healthy part of, you know, getting back into a healthier body. Um, But it's so countercultural that I think it's really difficult to, yeah. I I always say you kind of have to you kind of have to turn everything that you think you know about health upside down on its head because, you know, I mean, again, we, we keep, you know, you keep hearing about dairy causes inflammation and gluten causes inflammation. And I mean, actually we need inflammation in order to stay alive. Yes. Um, but you know, it's really that our bodies generally can deal with all of that stuff in, in moderation. And, um, you know, I think that pushing back on some of those food rules where they're sort of developed for a specific set of people, but then somehow we all are supposed to apply them and, you know, it's it's supposed to make all of us feel better. And really the restriction doesn't, I mean, there's so many negative symptoms associated with food restriction and not eating enough for our bodies, not nourishing our bodies well, um, that, absolutely overwhelm any of those other, um, you know, any of those other supposed negative consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, and I think this is, well, I mean, I've spoken about this in the first episode where we talk about our stories. I literally went into recovery, uh, 4HA thinking I want to have a baby Never mind. I'm just gonna do it, but I'm not actually gonna do it in the sense of that's it. I mean, I have to mm-hmm. turn that page, accept that the body I am in right now, even though I feel quote unquote like it's the right body for me because it's thinner. Let's not mm-hmm. kid ourselves here. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually doesn't support. It doesn't support my health. It doesn't allow me to be properly healthy, to have, you know, strong bones and energy and good immunity. And for me, it was like really having a baby. And the reality is I went into it thinking, oh, I'm going to be putting on so much weight and be ugly, but it doesn't matter because all I want is to be a mother. But Mm -hmm. the reality is, had I done a bit of work on my body image at that time, I think I would have been out of it for good and Mm -hmm. I didn't do it. And so obviously it cost me another five years down the line (laughs) where I relapsed. And it was really unfortunate because by that stage I already had children. So 
it was even more overwhelming to relapse. So um, I agree with you. I think it's really about seeing it as a long lasting change that will actually allow for you to really stay healthy, find the balance that is right for your body rather than saying, I'm just going to put on all the weight. I don't give a damn. I'm just going to get pregnant, have this baby, and then I'll do something else to get rid of the weight. Because that's actually, and you know, the more you go through these phases where you gain and lose and gain and lose, it's called weight cycling. It's actually really, really damageable to you. We know that weight cycling is actually causing more harm to your body than staying at at a good weight for you, whatever that's Mm going to be, right? Yeah. And it's obviously, as you said, it's a lot more problematic to be at a lower weight than at a normal slash a little bit higher weight. Yeah. Um, we know that from research. The problem is nobody talks about it because it doesn't right. sustain right. the billions of diet culture products they try to sell us. But anyhow. Yeah, I just I just saw some interesting data from um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. They looked at IVF success rates um, based on age and body size. And uh-huh. um they they're there's sort of a happy middle where people yeah. have the, have the easiest time getting pregnant and it's not at the low end and it's not at the high end so you know i think that really but they 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 of course never focus on the low end there's not you know there's not really any commentary about that side of things um yeah so yeah. i think it is important to point that out um, yeah but yeah i think you know i think one really interesting thing for me is how my understanding of all of this has changed over the years. I mean, I know when we were on the Fertile Thoughts board, um, I often used to say, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll get pregnant and you'll lose the weight afterwards. And it's like, that's, you know, that was that was our mindset at the time. That was sort of how, yeah. you know, how we were thinking about things. And I think that's one of the really important things about doing this work for the longer term is... Um, you know, coming to an understanding for ourselves, as well as for the people that we're working with, that it's not about getting back to whatever, you know, whatever your mind thinks is a good size for you. It's really about letting your body figure out a place where it feels happy and healthy and comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like for me, I I really saw it. The more I went through uh, relapsing and then, you know, putting back the weight and then mm-hmm. losing it again and putting it back on, the more I destroyed my, 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 the functioning of my body was actually much more sluggish, you know, and developed mm-hmm. thyroid issues and other issues. And of course, you can never really link one to the other immediately, right? Of course, there's genetics and there's like a whole bunch yep. of stuff that, yep. that takes part in this. But I can tell you, I felt better <laughs> like the first time I recovered and had um, my pregnancies and recovered from my pregnancies than, than I did later on after going mm-hmm. through the dieting, um, dieting like square one again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is something that it's not easy to hear. It's not what uh, lots of people starting recovery want to hear. They want to hear that they can kind of temporarily fix it and then go back to their old ways. The reality yeah. is um, this is probably not the way you need to look at it. But again, I think thankfully, as you say, like even in 10 years, like the, the we've grown by leaps and bounds when we mm-hmm. think of the 
type of words we use and how we see things and how we want to you know show that appearance is really not everything in our lives and what really matters so yeah i think there's definitely support out there whether it is through your uh, community whether it is through coaching whether it is through even just following our accounts you know i have a lot of people that say i just can't afford anything but i'm i really like what you post i'm so happy mm-hmm. that i can follow you and it helps me um i think it's just finding your community is going to be really important to get yeah, that support absolutely. um so um okay are you feeling ready for some myth busting then? I am so ready for myth busting. <laughs> we'll need the buzzer. Ooh. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bring back the buzzer. Uh, no, I mean, these ones are all going to be uh, wrong. Yes, um, yes. Number one, uh, all in is going to make me fat. And I, if I start on that path of, you know, eating all those calories, not exercising, I will never stop gaining weight. That's a very common one, isn't it? It is. Um, And the first thing that I need to say to that is, um, you know, the idea of fat being bad is something that we really need to work on. I mean, first of all, fat is a hormonal organ. Um, It converts testosterone to estradiol. Uh, It it secretes a hormone called leptin that our hypothalamus senses. And that's actually kind of how our hypothalamus knows when we're in the size body that it really would like to be in. Um, So fat equals bad is just something that we need to get out of our lexicon altogether. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very societal based um, way of thinking about it. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, there's so many, you know, so many people we've already had on our podcast who have helped, you know, talk through this in different ways. So we really, you know, if you're still in that mindset, we really encourage you to listen to some of those podcasts, get the resources, get the books, like more than a body and you have the right to remain fat. And I also love Sonia Renee Taylor's, um, the body is not an apology. So that's a, that's a good place to start. Um, but as far as, as far as the actual physiology of it, um, a lot of people do find that when they first start eating at recovery levels that they do put on weight quite quickly. Um, it's not all fat. I mean, there was a really interesting experiment that was done in mice where they, if when the mice lost 10% of their body weight, they lost something like 20% of their kidney weight and 30% of their liver weight. So, you know, it's like when you're losing weight, it's not just fat. You're also losing organ mass and muscle mass and bone density. And so it's like when you start gaining back, you're putting back all of those things and you're allowing your body to repair and replace and regenerate. And, you know, so that is not a bad thing. Um, and the other thing is that your metabolism has slowed down because your body can only use as much energy as you're giving it. And so as you eat more, your metabolism speeds up and you start using more of the energy, you know, sort of the extra, you know, quote unquote extra energy until your body does get to this place of balance and equilibrium. So there's, you know, weight gain is a not bad to begin with and B it's not never ending. You know, there's, it just, your system becomes more balanced and you, it's able to do more of the things that it needs to do. And people often find that they feel so much better once they have gone through this process and allowed their bodies to settle to the place that is a happy place for them. 
I mean, our bodies are really clever, right? At mm-hmm. using the surplus of energy that we bring after we've been in a situation where we were in deficit. And I think this is something that a lot of people, it's just a lot of information, especially online, is so oversimplified that mm-hmm. this, this, and we, you know, the calories in, calories out, we know that that model doesn't hold through anymore. It's really, it's really something that is outdated by now. Um, but this idea that a lot of people keep having is that, oh, but if I keep eating that way, I'm just going to grow and grow and grow and becoming this balloon. But it's not like that. Your body actually becomes also a lot more efficient at using that energy and at burning mm-hmm. that energy. Because when you are in deficit, the body doesn't burn that energy in the same way because it's trying to hold on to everything. And that's also yep. why in the first few weeks, yes, if you have been really deprived of food and energy, you will actually keep on quite a bit of weight because your body is like, ah, finally we get something. We're just going to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. But the more you're able to show your body, I'm going to feed you regularly. Everything's going to be fine. Like I'm not going to forget about you. I'm not going to ignore the signs that you send me anymore. Then you, you see that you're also able to burn more energy. Your metabolism feels a lot better. You have more energy. You, you're more present in your life. And all of that actually involves having enough calories as well. So yep. um, I think it's uh, it's important not to oversimplify the idea of like, oh, I'm gonna just gonna shove those uh, those calories in my body and just balloon up. Um, this is something personally I haven't seen happening, honestly. Um, but you're right again. Like it's not about also you know, what is my body going to look like? I think this is something people have to work on if they are really Mm -hmm. scared of that, Uh, because there's totally lots of ways to make you feel better in your body, whatever it's look and appearance for sure. Um, Okay. Myth number two, all in means um, I can do it. I can be all in while still eating healthy. So I'm going to, and this is something I hear a lot. I'm just going to add, you know, good nuts and avocados and mm-hmm. salmon, but I'm sweet not. Sweet potatoes. Gonna, yeah, sweet potatoes, <laughs> amazing. But, uh, you know, but I'm not going to have the, I don't know, the uh, McDonald's or God forbid Pizza. I'm going to have a donut, you know, that would be yeah. really bad for me. Um, yeah. What would you say to that? couple things I mean one it's actually quite hard to get the energy that your body needs from those quote unquote healthy foods because they do tend to be lower in energy density and so you have to eat an enormous volume of food in order to be able to actually get to 2500 calories or more Uh um And that can be incredibly uncomfortable and cause a lot of bloating and GI discomfort and, you know, constipation um, constipation (laughs) or diarrhea or whatever it is. And so, you know, I think this idea of I think in that case, it's really important to examine why you think that those kinds of foods are healthy, quote unquote healthy, and say a cookie is not quote unquote healthy. I mean, a cookie has a lot of energy density. I mean, ice cream. Ice cream is a lovely fertility food, um, you know, which is what we call it in the book. It's fertility foods, not 
junk, quote unquote, foods, um, <laughs> because it's not junk. I mean, ice cream has fat and protein and carbs, and it tastes delicious as long as you're not getting the low fat, non fat crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fake ice um, cream. Yes, yes. But so that's a lot of energy in a small package, and it's pleasurable and it's enjoyable. And, you know, I think that. The, the sort of quote unquote healthy foods, it's like, it's, it's not fun to eat those foods a lot of times. Um, mm. And so, you know, I mean, I suppose, yes, you could just eat more of those foods and get to, you know, get to a place of getting enough energy for your body. But mm-hmm. again, that's not all that all in is. All in is learning to enjoy food and being okay with enjoying food and allowing yourself to enjoy food, believing that you are worthy to enjoy food and enjoy your life. Um, And so, I mean, I guess technically, yes, I suppose you could, but I just don't really know why you'd want to. I mean, I think it just doesn't help with the mindset. um, Mm -hmm. First thing for me, that's the problem. Uh, If you're not able to go to uh, the country fair and have a corn dog because that's what your kids or want fried to have. Dough. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? If you're not able to do that, if it's terrifying for you to do that, even though you know you are trying to recover, even though you're trying to get your period back, you have to be in a surplus of energy rather than a def- deficit. Uh, that's that's effectively an eating disorder, right? That's, mm-hmm. That makes you impaired. And that's the exact definition of an eating disorder. It's not about the size. It's not about the gender. Mm-hmm. It's not about the age. It's how socially and emotionally impaired you're going to be if you're going to have certain foods. So I think it's important to get over those boundaries that you set for yourself when you were dieting and to yep. say, you know, I may... And I don't think there's anything bad in saying, you know, I, I, I do find it still difficult and I'm going to try and get into it like slowly, slowly. And I'm going to try and add some foods like at my own pace as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I can see how it can be really overwhelming to eat all those foods that you saw as dangerous sometimes for a long time. Um, but it's really important to keep challenging ourselves not to get stuck into this kind of in-between recovery situation where you don't have the quote-unquote benefit of the coping mechanism that your eating disorder was giving you at a time, but then you also don't have the benefit of actually living your life 100%. So you're really kind of in between two chairs. It just feels really uneasy. That's number one for me about that. And the second thing is, as you said, Unhealthy foods to me don't exist Mm -hmm. because an unhealthy food would be if I eat, for example, raw chicken with salmonella in it, that would be really (laughs) unhealthy. That would be silly to do because it would make me sick. But the reality is, is a Snickers unhealthy or is broccoli unhealthy? Well, both of them, if I eat only that, will not be very healthy for me. Mm -hmm. But if I eat in a balanced way and I can actually... Uh, function with a bit of everything in my diet, none of it is healthy or unhealthy. And I think it's really Mm -hmm. damageable to think this way. It's really damageable to even teach our children to think this way because a lot of parents now say, oh no, I don't use good or bad, but I say healthy or unhealthy. Well, no, it's not uh, like, it's not specifically unhealthy if you eat it. So 
you know, we have pizza once a week at home, uh, or if we're out, we just have the pizza outside. It doesn't matter, but I don't see it as being unhealthy behavior. Um, because having pizza once a week and, you know, we try to get like a proper quality pizza, like not something is a nice pizza, right. That you like to taste of and it's pleasurable to eat. Um, but again, if we're going to be at the cinema and all there is next to it and we're hungry before the cinema and all there is, is a McDonald's, we're going to have McDonald's and there's no big deal Mm -hmm. and I'm Mm -hmm. not going to freak out about it. So I think that's the two things to think about when you're in recovery for me. Myth number three. Olin cannot be healthy because exercise is so good for you. <laughs> um, again, you know, I, I do think that exercise is healthy. It, it is really good for us to move our bodies, um, to get our heart pumping, all of that. But it really depends on where you are. You know, if you don't have a period or if you feel like you must exercise every single day, no matter what, that's not healthy. I mean, just not having a period is not healthy to begin with. And it's also associated with all sorts of other negative effects. So the relative energy deficiency in sport, all sorts of negative side effects. So Mm -hmm. this idea that exercise is healthy, no matter what, I think is just blatantly false because, you know, exercise in and of itself is healthy, but you have to layer on all of the other factors in where yes. your particular body is. You know, exercise for one person can be, you know, incredibly healthy, like a real, you know, especially like, let's say somebody has been sitting at their desk for six months and that's all they've been doing, you know, for them to get up and move their body, like it's going to be so good for them. But if somebody has been exercising every single day for hours a day without nourishing their body properly, that's another mm-hmm. whole layer to it, then no, it's not healthy because it's perpetuating the the negative impacts of the underfueling. It's perpetuating the negative mental effects of feeling like you do have to exercise all the time. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I think that exercise is healthy depending on your situation. And, you yes. know, obviously, as you, as you said, if you have a broken foot and you're going out running, not healthy. No, I mean <laughs> clearly sense, because right? it's right. Um and yeah. so same thing when you're when you're missing your period. It's, you know, especially high intensity exercise is likely preventing you from recovering your period. And mm-hmm. so no, it's not healthy. It's just unequiv- unequivocally not. Um you know, I always I always say when I'm working with people, you know, the food thing is forever. Like you always need to nourish your body. That's not a, Mm -hmm. that's not a negotiable. That's not a short-term thing. It's always, always, always feed yourself, feed your, you know, feed your exercise, feel your body. Um, the exercise, like cutting back on the exercise, that's a, that's more of a temporary thing. That's to allow your body time to recover. And then absolutely you can get back into exercise down the line. And I think that that is a very good thing. And, you know, but it's just, it's a little bit, Hopefully people are exercising a little bit differently after recovery, which is exercising because it feels good and when it feels good and doing exercises that, you know, both are good for your body and good for your mind um, yes. and 
nourishing that exercise, giving your body the fuel that it needs to be able to move and to be able to repair and, and all of that stuff. So, and complementing it with rest, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the other thing that we, I find that I wish we would glorify rest for the, the way it should yes. be glorified <laughs> because even athletes will tell you they train like crazy, but they know that if they don't rest, they're not going to build the muscle. They're not going to, they're going to get injured. They're going to have issues. So I think it's, um, it's again, a misconception and something that is the kind of message that we see, right? Team no days yeah. off. No, yes. that's, oh, gosh. that's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. Like, don't do that. This is no yep. good. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I think same as you, I, I use a temporary. And I think also all in being guidelines in exercise, we actually don't discourage movement right. while you are recovering. And I think this is something we didn't know much about when we recovered. We really kind of went for the minimal, minimal, right? We were like, oh, what is going to happen? Now we know that people can actually move their bodies in low intensity ways, not every day, not power walking for miles. Yeah. Yeah. But so there's obviously a nuance in it, but there is possibility to include movement in your recovery and feel like you can actually, you don't have to sit all day long and feel horrible about yourself. Um, you can stretch, you can do mild yoga, you can walk, you can, uh, you know, go on a bike ride if it's not too strenuous. And there are ways for you to know like, okay, this, this is enough for me now. And I'm going to make sure that I also have my rest days. But I think it's, um, again, like it's, it shouldn't be that exercise is just this really punitive, horrible, hard thing right. to do that you have to sweat for. Right. Yep. Yep. Cool. Um, Myth number four, all-in is not necessary if I get fertility treatments. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a big one. Um, and unfortunately, there are a lot of medical doctors who basically will tell you that. They'll say, oh, you know, well, here it is. Go on the pill, you know. And come back when you want to be. And come back when you want to get pregnant. <laughs> um, yeah. And they just, you know, I mean, does work for some people. I'm not, you know, I can't lie, but, you know, for a lot of people, they find that the fertility treatments do not work as well when they're not at least actively working on recovery, if not recovered already. Um, you know, the injection, like the, the oral medications like Clomid and Fumara will not work for you if you are not, if you have HA and you are not working on recovery, that's, you know, that's pretty unequivocal. Um, so then you're looking at injections or IVF and, you know, they can work, but a lot of times people don't respond as well to the injections. They, there is a lower pregnancy rate. Um, even if you are able to get a single follicle, you know, there's more issues with canceled cycles. Um, you know, I've worked with multiple people who have done many IVF cycles, you know, four or five, six failed IVF cycles before going all in. Um, and then they go all in and either, you know, their frozen embryo transfer is successful or they get pregnant naturally or with oral medications. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, I, I can, and I mean, that's just on the pregnancy side of it. Like, there's so much more to all in and the value that you get from doing that work and, you know, 
not feeling like when you're pregnant, you have to look a certain way, you know, only be, you know, only have this little teeny tiny tummy. And, you know, that's that that's that's also not that healthy for baby and definitely not for mom. Um, Super toxic. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, so there's just there's just so much value to the mental side of recovery before pregnancy. Um, I can't Mm -hmm. I really can't stress that enough that just jumping right to fertility treatments because you can, because your doctor will let you, you know, that's not necessarily going to be the best thing for you or your future or your children or anything like that. And so working particularly on the mental side, but also the physical side, it's going to be so helpful for that whole process of fertility treatments and pregnancy and postpartum recovery and and all of that. Yeah. Breastfeeding and then being Mm -hmm. present for your child, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, instead of counting down the days until you can go back and exercise. I mean, I know it sounds really silly. And as you said, it's actually highly toxic, mostly for, for mothers rather than their mm-hmm. babies. Yeah. Uh, the yep. body is so magically created that it will always protect the baby. And there's a good chance that you will have Uh, you know, a perfectly healthy child, but then you will be the one suffering. You will be the one completely depleted because you Mm -hmm. went in already in a deficit. So, you know, you come out of it with even less nutrients and energy and availability. Um, And the reality is now you have to care for this little infant who needs your constant attention and, and, and strength, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's a lot to say about also, you know, postpartum depression. If you yep. feel so depleted all the time and lethargic and, and horrible because you just don't have enough energy, is it's going to be really difficult to get over, you know, the, the whole postpartum and the, what they call, you know, the 10th month of pregnancy yep. and all of that stuff yep. and breastfeeding. I mean, all of that is already super overwhelming when you become a mom for the first mm-hmm. time. So... Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely and don't get into pregnancy with disordered eating or an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do it for yourself, do it for your kid, because yeah. you are going to pass that on. I do also want to point out that there is a higher risk of preterm delivery if you are yes, underweight during pregnancy. And, you know, there are possible metabolic metabolic consequences for your children if you are significantly yes. under fueling during pregnancy. So it's I mean, it is, you know, it's important for both of you, for both mom and baby to be really well nourished during pregnancy um, and after yeah. and before and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, again, like not having to go all in because you're going to do fertility treatments like that's a like I want an enormous buzzer on that one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Triple buzzer, please. Yes. yes. And I mean, for having done this work of recovery, mental recovery, when my children were five, four and five, five and six, roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, this is hard. It's, it was really overwhelming for me to work on myself so much and also care for little ones and mm-hmm. listening to them and nurturing them. And so if you can do that work while it's still you and your partner, <laughs> which I would really recommend that. Yes. Um, okay. Last myth I wanted to bust with you uh, before we move on to something else is... Um, my hormone levels and my BMI are normal, quote unquote. I don't need <laughs> Olin. 
Which, by the way, this is freaky because a lot of doctors will say that even. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, so there are a couple of things there. I mean, one, as we've said so many times, like body size is has really nothing to do with anything. So um, if you're missing your period, then it means that there's something wrong and it yes. doesn't matter what your body size is. It, you know, you need to do some investigation, figure out what the root cause is. Is it HA? Mm. Is it something else? And then address that root cause. And if the root cause is HA, then I can unequivocally say that all in is the answer. I mean, I've helped thousands of women recover at this point. And, you know, so many of them were like, well, I'm not ready yet. And I'm going to try this other thing. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work mm. all in works. It's got, you know, many, many years of evidence and support and, um, yeah. yeah. And the hormone levels being normal. I mean, you know, a, a lot of times doctors are not even testing the correct hormones to be able to tell yes. if somebody has possibly, possibly has HA B, um, you know, the hypothalamus works on a, on a sort of spectrum. It's not on or off, you know, there's a range of functionality. And so you can have hormone levels that are normal, but still be missing your period. And it's probably HA. I mean, we can't, you know, in that, yeah. in that case, we, we can't necessarily say, but, um, I mean, I was just, I was just chatting with somebody the other day who, whose doctor said, oh, you're definitely in menopause. And she sent me her blood work. I'm like, they didn't even look at the right hormones. They can't say, there's no way that they can say that just by looking that at your estrogen so and progesterone. And, you know, so it's like, you know, quote unquote, normal hormone levels. Like you really need to be working with somebody who knows what they're doing mm -hmm. and knows what hormones you should be looking at. And then yeah. also understands the whole physiology of this yes. and that you can have seemingly normal hormone levels, but if you're not getting your period, then something is not normal. So like, it doesn't matter what your, what your hormone levels say, you know, chances are that if it's HA related, again, you know, you need to be working with somebody that can help you really make that distinction. Um, then all in is the right thing to do. Yeah. I find also, you know, these ranges of hormone levels are so crazy, right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> what mm -hmm. they see as normal goes from like two to 200, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, <laughs> and so for someone who is not scientifically trained and, you know, follows what their doctor says, the doctor says, yeah, you have an LH of three, it's in the normal range. And you're like, okay. But then, you know, for now, for me now working with you for so long and, and you educating me and seeing clients with the, those types of results, I know that this is really, really low. So mm -hmm. it could be in the quote unquote normal range, but would it be normal to stay at this low level all over like months and years and never to change? Well, no, this is again, something that yeah. would be cause to to ask ourselves what is happening really in the body so yeah um well that's great I think those are all the myths that I had listed down mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much Nicola for answering yeah, those cool. I love a bit of myth busting we hadn't done me enough. too yes um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think you know one of the reasons we really like both of us, I mean, working in this field and supporting people in recovery is really a passion for both of us. Um, and it's, 
I think it's also because it is really so helpful to be there and support people in recovery. It it can feel really scary to get yeah. into that process. Yes. Um, and I wanted to just have a little bit of time to talk a bit about, you know, when you coined the term all in, you know, it's probably still on the board at that time, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. pre-book. It's kind of a long yeah. time ago. I find that now we see the term being used all over the place online. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been co-opted quite a bit. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you know with people coming with their own programs and communities and recovery plans, like how can you know whether they are actually following what is effective? Um, what are some things that people can watch out for when it comes to really trusting? And, and I can totally see that some people do not want to work with us because maybe they mm-hmm. don't feel comfortable with us. It's very personal. But I think there are boundaries that we need to maybe establish. And you having done all that extensive research and having an evidence-based you know, recipe uh, to bring back periods, I'm interested to know like what would be the boundaries that you would set with people coming into this, having never heard about HA before, and mm-hmm. how do they know which program is, is legit and which one might be actually damageable? Well, so I think one of the big things is um, if you're working with somebody who's sort of gone through this experience themselves, um, really digging into where they are in their own recovery process. I mean, if somebody has not yet gotten their own period back, well, they probably shouldn't be guiding anyone else along this journey just yet. Um if somebody is newly recovered, if they got their period last month or two months ago, you know, there's still so much physical and mental work to do even beyond that initial first period. Um, so just really being mindful of, you know, the person that you're choosing to work with and where they are in their own recovery journey. Um, if there's still labeling or categorizing foods as healthy or un- unhealthy, you know, as, as we were saying earlier, unless you're like eating raw chicken, you know, probably not unhealthy, um, or using diet terminology, like I'm having a cheat meal or, you know, mm-hmm. posting, posting their, you know, what I had in a day, you know, all of that yes. stuff is, is, um, you know, sort of still a sign that somebody is, not feeling fully free and comfortable with their own journey. And, you know, again, for somebody who's, who's still thinking in those ways to try to be trying to guide other people along this journey, you know, that just leads to sort of a a compilation of problematic behaviors and thoughts and feelings. And so I just really would encourage everybody to, you know, if you want to work with somebody on period recovery, that they be, um, you know, well recovered and sort of visibly out of the diet and exercise and fitness health mentality. I mean, I think that's like, that's such a huge part of it. You know, if they're still talking about like, you know, if they're still saying, oh, you don't have to gain that much weight or, you know, you can, you don't have to cut out all of your exercise, you know, all of your high intensity exercise, you know, 
not necessarily mm-hmm. evidence-based. Like, find out from them why do you say this? Like, how do you? How can you tell me I don't have to gain that much weight? Like, what's your evidence for that? You know, I mean, it yeah. might be something that you would like to hear. It makes you feel good because you are still afraid of weight gain and what that means. Um, yeah. But does that really mean that you are being guided in the best way for your long-term health and recovery? Um, mm-hmm. Makes so sense. Are, yeah, yeah. And I think one of, uh, an important one for me as well, and something that I really look at uh, specifically is is the kind of before and after mentality and imagery, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. all the oh self-objectification gosh, yes. that we discuss in, um, in details with uh, Lindsay Kite. Uh, I can't remember the number of the episode, but it's the first one of season two. Um, yep. it, the, the, the whole idea of... Uh, you know, I have, uh, I used to have HA, this is how I looked before, I gained some weight, mm-hmm. this is how I look now. But look, you know, I still look, quote unquote, sexy and acceptable. Yes. Um, or, you know, even the, doing that with their clients, it, it would basically, you know, it, it's still focusing on obtaining a certain body appearance and recovery. Mm-hmm. And that cannot mm-hmm. be the goal. Um, it, it, we really have to stop obsessing over how our bodies are going to look uh, yes. if we want to get yes. out of that that kind of conundrum, right? Yeah, I mean, if a, if a period recovery coach or eating disorder recovery coach or diet recovery coach is using their own body as a hook to draw you in, um, you know, it's just perpetuating the diet and fitness culture. It's It's saying like, look at me, look how amazing I look, you know, you can do this too. I mean, that's, you know, that to me is just so problematic on so many levels because it keeps the focus on our appearance and not what's inside. And, you know, that's, you know, that's really the most important thing. And I think I really loved that episode with, um, with, uh, Dr. Kite, where we talk about, um, and with, with, uh, Dr. Gentili as well, talking about how problematic it is to continue to focus on our body's appearance as opposed to its function and how it serves us in this world. And I think when people are, encouraging clients to come to them by sharing how they look and implying that that's going to be, you know, you can look this way too. You know, it just, I really have a lot of trouble with that mindset. And, um, you know, I just think that it's really hard for people to coach others into a full recovery when they're still focused on their own body and what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, another another red flag, I would say, is the whole uh, numbers game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, counting how much weight you've gained or how many calories or um, it, it, it's really difficult to compare um, with other people, uh, whether it is about, you know, the way they will look in recovery or how, you know, much weight they would have gained or not gained or, or the whole, I hate the terms overshoot. Mm-hmm. I find it mm-hmm. so annoying to me because it, it, it participates in this whole narrative of the BMI of this is my normal weight. And then this is when I get over it and then I will have to come back. It just, our bodies evolve and change and grow and and age. Why why would we set like a 
typical, you know, normal weight and then go over and under and hope that mm-hmm. we're going to go back. It just, it, it just perpetuates this, this obsession we have with it. Um, so I know, and I know this is something you worked on with the second edition of the book, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, so you and I have had a lot of conversations about this um, because I do, (laughs) I do use some numbers in the book and I think, um, you know, it's where I've come down on, on that question is that so many of us are in bodies that are too small for us Mm-hmm. But nobody really tells us that, you know, there's no doctor that's going to look at you if your BMI is in the quote unquote normal range at the very bottom of that range and say, oh, you probably should, you know, you probably are going to need some to gain some weight to get your period back. Um, and so I just I wanted to put the numbers in there just to give people an idea of like this is sort of a range where your body's probably going to be comfortable. You know, it might be a little bit lower. It might be a little bit higher. Um but I did feel like it was important to keep those numbers in there. So I have, through the editions of the book, I have taken out a lot more numbers and certainly taken out some yes. problematic terminology um, and, you know, try, try to keep it sort of as little numbers focused as possible. But I think that mm-hmm. there's a difference between reading that in a book versus having an ongoing conversation. And so, you know, I know with the, with the old um, Facebook support group that there were some people who complained about not being able to share numbers, but we just found through the years of managing that group that, um, you know, there's really no benefit to saying I gained X amount of weight and, you know, how much did you gain? It's like, Everybody is different. And so the, those sort of ongoing conversations, keeping numbers out of it, I just think it really, you know, the numbers can be problematic on so many levels. You know, for somebody who gained more, it makes them feel bad. For somebody who hasn't, who ha- is still working on recovery, maybe it can be more scary to see a big number or whatever. So it just, you know, it just yeah. feels like keeping numbers out of ongoing conversations, um, especially in groups, support groups, whatever, I think is just much more beneficial for everybody. And, you know, sort of encouraging people to think like, well, why do you need to put that number in there? Like, what do you Mm -hmm. actually, what's the benefit to you of sharing that number? Um, And, you know, I think that really making people think about that and, um, you know, I think, I think that that's sort of part of why, in the Facebook group, we we really didn't like people to use numbers, and certainly that's the, the that's what's going on in my new support group as well. Is you know trying to stay away from the the numbers and the comparison. I mean, that's really that's really what it's all about. Totally, totally. And I I think I guess one of the caveats here for me at least, um, and I know it's probably the same with you. Um, I don't typically ask clients kind of straight on, like, what's your weight? What's your height when I meet them? mm -hmm. But, but I will gauge whether this person might still be typically under their weight so far from their kind of balanced weight that I know that they will have to gain weight in order to mm-hmm. recover, right? And and sometimes this is where I will actually calculate BMI and mm-hmm. say, well, you're really, you know, this is really something that has to be a bit of a 
of an effort and a commitment to realize that at this level of weight, you will actually endanger your body and there needs to be a recognition of it. But beyond that, like once the person is quote unquote back to a weight where they can, you know, live fully and they're not impaired by the disease and it it feels a lot better and they're slowly seeing signs that their body is on their way to recover their periods after that it's kind of not of a not of a conversation topic to me Mm -hmm. but I am gonna talk to you if you come to me with a BMI of 15 I I have to I have the responsibility to tell you well yes you will you will most likely have to make an effort to gain some weight because that is not you know that there's no way that naturally your body is that mm-hmm. lean do do you get my point yeah yeah absolutely but I think that that's a very you know it's a very different conversation one on one versus in a support group or oh, a, totally. a, a group setting so yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And and to me, it's not also like, a, you know, a lot of the traditional treatment of eating disorder, you had this kind of target BMI and this oh, is where you want to be. Oh, that makes me so, yeah. yeah. So Because it's, well, it's almost always too low and it almost always is not a place where somebody is fully recovered. It's like they're quote unquote weight restored. And, you know, that's yeah. often quasi recovery. And, you know, so many people still need to go all in after that to actually get to a place of true health. Absolutely. And I think it keeps your focus on those numbers. Yes. That, that mm-hmm. is the problem also. And yes. I know I've had yes. this discussion many times with Meg uh, from mm-hmm. Megzy Recovery, you know, because she lives in Dubai and she's also a volunteer for the same um, Middle East Eating Disorder Association as I am. So I'm very fortunate that I get to meet her on a regular basis and we work together and we chit chat about those things. And she was saying for her, because she did CBTE, there is really this sense of this is the kind of the BMI um, range where we want you to end up at. Mm -hmm. But the problem is because there's also a higher level on the range what happens if you go over that range? Then your therapist is also going to say, oh, no, we, you know, we want you to be lower. But the reality is <laughs> we, sometimes it keeps people in this you know, way of thinking and in this mindset mm-hmm. of being sick and, and holding on to, I have to be a certain weight. I have to get in a certain range. So uh, I thought it was fascinating that even she actually shared that with me. I hope she doesn't mind sharing that here. I'm pretty sure she shared it on her YouTube as well, that she said, to me, it was actually detrimental to Mm -hmm. talk about this range. Absolutely. And I know a lot of people in treatment will say, yeah, but it will reassure the patient that they're not going to get fat. That is not what we want to get. I mean, that statement in and of itself is so problematic. still (laughs) problematic, right? So what we want is to really make sure that the patient knows that they are worthy no matter what, no Mm -hmm. matter what their BMI is going to be. And we know also that the value of BMI is really very limited, right? It shouldn't be used individually. It has been created mostly on white males in 1830. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just full of issues and we keep using that, you know, for, for the, the range. So I just wanted to say this, that I will actually check BMI with new clients if I feel that they are still very much in the lower end of the spectrum mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of the BMI. And uh, I feel like they need to really let go of that and to say, I am going to have to come back to a place where my body is 
really nourished properly. And then by that stage, like we really let go of that, of that setting, yes. right? There's really no yep. need to talk about it. So, um, Overall, I guess the point of this episode is that, <laughs> you know, Olin is kind of mentioned in a lot of different places online and uh, I'm sure in many different ebooks and whatever. And we forget that it is really full of nuances and specificities and that these really belong with you, Nicola, and that you have done so much work and looked at so many researches and studies and evidence that really allowed you to come up with this program, right? So um, it was important for us to reiterate that it would be too reductive to look at Olin as just a set of conditions that one has to put in place to recover. It's full of nuance. It's not that mm -hmm. it's not set in stone. That's definitely where you can start, as you said, right? It's eating enough, not uh, doing high intensity exercise and dealing with stress properly. I mean, I find that for me, these are the three conditions yeah. that I can look at, but it's really helpful to explore more in the process, see where things are more difficult for each person, mm -hmm. what it says about the work of recovery that is necessary. Some of us will have to work more on the food side. Some of us will have to work more on the exercise Uh, side of things. Others will realize that actually they, they have never dealt with anxiety since they are maybe mm -hmm. children, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us have experienced anxiety in, in childhood and didn't know it was anxiety. And so really, you know, disordered eating sometimes comes as a way to navigate anxiety. So it might be that, you know, there's really uh, things to do there as well. All in is not a rigid concept. Um, that's also why you wrote a 500 pages book to support <laughs> yep. this. Um, and please, please keep in mind, the internet tends to oversimplify everything and that yes. can be quite dangerous or harmful. So if you feel drawn to all in as a process, reading the book should really be your first point of call. I can never say that enough. I think we take it for granted. People listen to the podcast and I'm so grateful for it, but the book is really not an option. It's really the basis of everything. Um, so before you change anything in your routine, really get into the book, understand all the numbers, all the research that is behind it. And if you're really stuck or terrified going through this process, it's important to get help. Get mm -hmm. someone that is really specialized in eating disorders. Come to us if you have questions. We will never take on someone that we don't think we will not be able to help. Mm -hmm. I actually re redirect people to psychologists um, on a regular basis. If I feel like, you know, sometimes they have been stuck in an eating disorder for a really, really long time. Coaching is not going to be enough to break that yeah. pattern, right? Yeah. Um, so really, you know, reach out, get help. Um, we're here to really support you in your recovery. Oh, yeah, that was yes. a long, that was a long <laughs> speech. Anything else you want to say, Nicola, before we ask our ritual question? Um, so I just wanted to pop in a little quote from somebody in my new support group, which people can go to at noperiod.info slash support. She joined um, after being, you know, after reading the book about a month ago and she said, I just really wish I had joined this sooner because the support here is incredible. Um, you know, and I think that 
again, having, having a community of people supporting you through this process is so helpful and really having that community be one where, um, you know, the moderators know what they're doing, I think is really important. You know, anyone can start in a community, um, but just make sure that you look, you really look at the qualifications of the people who are leading the community. And um, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, and, we have over, yeah. over 10 years of moderating behind us now, right? Because uh-huh. yep. I mean, you were mostly doing the, the discussions on the board, definitely. I mean, I was definitely not part of the kind of moderation at that time. Mm-hmm. I was definitely a participant. And I think I, I remember you as being the main person really giving us the right advice and evidence and support. But after that, I mean, the Facebook group we've done for years and years and years. And I think it has been a great experience actually going beyond our personal experiences and seeing all the different ways that people uh, can recover, go through this process. Yeah. So you're right. That's yeah. really important. So last and question, then, because this, this is a long episode. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, I just, Sorry. I just also wanted to say that, you know, it, there is also a lot of value to working with somebody one-on-one because we can dig deeper into your own personal situation and, you know, the support groups are great, but, um, you know, I think that there is also so much value to spending a little bit of money on yourself. And, you know, I know, I know it's hard for me to do, like, it's hard to take that money and be like, this is for me. This is something I'm doing for myself. But, you know, I think that that's really, that that can be really helpful as well to at least get you started on the, on the right track and make sure that you're doing everything that you can for recovery, both physical and mental. I love that. And I think I'm pretty sure that I can speak about you as well, that the fact that we did this work for ourselves actually really had repercussions on our families, our children, our partners, where we Mm -hmm. go in life, what we decide to do. It it really, it's a life, it's a game changer. It's a life changer to to say, I am going to invest in myself. I am going to work on the stuff that I feel stuck um, you know, I don't know what to do about, and I may have to work on my trauma. I may have to dig deeper and figure out mm-hmm. what I need to do, but this is money. I mean, I, w- I also, there's no regrets whatsoever in the money that you spend on yourself. And if you think of all the stuff you've spent on beauty and dieting <laughs> and yes. pff, Gym I don't want to, Oh, I don't want to think about it. Um, so, um, Nicola, how are you all in right now? I am all in on doing more video work. So I've been working with somebody to help me like get equipment and do some editing and really like step up my game on that. Cause it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, but it's been, it's been really scary. And I have let comparison with other people sort of slow me down and make me feel, um, less worthy. And so I am investing in myself and my business. And, um, I'm really excited to like, I'm going to start doing a myth busting series on YouTube and I've got lots of other <gasps> things so planned. Cool. So that's what I'm, that that's is- how I've been all in recently. That is super cool. And I think, yeah, I I think it's scary, but once you see also what you're able to produce and it's really high quality and you feel proud about it, I think it's mm-hmm. it's gonna be great. So that's awesome news. Well done. Well done. Because so, I know this is you. something also you've been 
definitely like sometimes we go through phases where we're not so sure what should we mm -hmm. do and is this really what we yeah. should be going into so I'm really proud of you for taking that decision and saying that's it I'm just gonna give it a try and yep. yes I may fail but I may also succeed so yes. that's really really exactly. cool exactly yeah how Amazing. about you how have well you done. been all in have I been all in? Um, well, I'm also working on something new, actually, um, mm -hmm. that I'm going to open uh, probably in 2022. Um, we talked about the French version of the book, so that's also yes. obviously still yep. in progress. But um, I have been receiving some training in order to put in place a guided self-help program for binge eating. Um, so that's going to be really exciting. I'm going to be supervised by a really well-known psychologist here who is really specialized in eating disorders and oh, very uh, cool. is doing amazing work with people that really, really need help. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And she wanted someone that she could refer patients to that might not be as sick as the one that she gets in her uh -huh. office. But that have currently to wait long months before getting any support. And mm -hmm. so I feel really fortunate that this is going to be something that I'm going to be able to do. Um, I, I love learning more mm -hmm. things, new things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, I think it's always exciting to think like, okay, I'm going to get new referrals and uh, look into how I can really support them in a way that, you know, this is guided self-help, right? So they, they're going to get a book, they're going to write through the book, and then we'll discuss about it and I will support them. So it's not really the work of therapy or coaching. It's going to be mm -hmm. a bit in between, but mm -hmm. it's, um, I think it's going to be really exciting for me to also yeah, take on. Yeah, uh, that's And great. I hope this is going to really also help with people that typically have to wait for so long uh, mm -hmm. to get access to uh, quote unquote proper psychologist. So it will be kind of a, a, a way also to, um, to support people that, that will be stuck, um, yeah. and maybe might not have access to treatment, which I'm, this is something that is close to my heart. I know it is for mm -hmm. you as well. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So, well done. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so Very much. Cool. Well, it was a lovely discussion. We've uh, gone on for a really long we time. We have, yes. <laughs> uh, we had a lot to say. Um, but, you know, uh, obviously any questions you have or anything like that, you know where to find us. Uh, yes. Please remember to get the book, to join the community. Uh, all the links are in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, we will. Um, I think this is going to be our last episode before the end of the year so we wish mm -hmm. you all a wonderful holiday season whatever yes, if you whatever you celebrate yep and, and then happy new year in, yeah happy new year we will see you yeah. in 2022 remember we have an older episode about new year and uh, not new you yes. <laughs> so not to <laughs> let yourself be taken by all the messages about i have to do this i have to do that get yourself the right resolutions for you um yes. we had recorded it last year um pretty sure it's still going to be useful uh but otherwise we will see you next year with a lot more exciting guests so that's all yes. happening all right bye 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 bye, bye, -bye. 
All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, Please take a few minutes to reflect on it and think how you have been all in this past week or few weeks. Um, It always strikes me how different each person's all-in journey is. As I often say, there are many paths to HA and many paths out of it. Your journey is unique. That is so true. And if you need more support on your journey, you should definitely start with No Period Now What, which you can get at noperiod.info slash book. You can also go to noperiod.info slash appointments to schedule a time to speak with me on understanding your blood work, fixing issues underlying your missing periods, and for guidance around fertility treatments, pregnancy, and post-recovery changes. And visit beyondbodyimage.com slash work dash with dash me to connect with me to overcome the fear of weight gain and finally develop healthy coping mechanisms around stress and your relationship with food, exercise, and your body. Remember, we also have joined clients, so you can access both our domains of expertise within a common coaching package of sessions available from both our websites. Also, join the No Period Now at Recovery Support Group at noperiod.info slash support and let us know how all in is going for you. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please drop us a review on iTunes to help more people find it. All in is not just about period recovery, it's about getting your life back. See you in two weeks. You were lost in Fatima, till you got lost again. You were lost in Fatima, now find yourself and then. Take all that you've learned about life, love, and loss. Pleasure and pain. And never get lost, never get lost again.